We are in that part of the book of Joshua where the inheritance is being divided amongst the 12 tribes. They've gone in. They've fought the battles. It's not totally everything it was meant to be, but it is a good portion of what God had promised. And some have obtained more than others, like Caleb and a few others. They went and got after everything that it had for them, and a few others did not. But in the end, we've begun to see the distribution of the inheritance to the different 12 tribes of Israel that God had promised them. And this new generation has grown up, they've entered in, and it's going to be their land that God has promised them. None of them earned it by grace, all of them are receiving it. It's a little inheritance, it's it's land the size of Southern California being divided between these 12 tribes, plus the Levites who get portions of cities and little common lands, but not really a territory like the other 12. And so as we pick it up tonight in chapter 18, we're going forward with these inheritances being divided And then these will be in place, and the people will be settled in the land. So they're inheriting houses they didn't build, vineyards they didn't plant, groves they didn't plant, wells they didn't dig, but they're inheriting it because God is good to them. So chapter 18, verse 1, for the children of promise and their covenant, we read, for the nation of Israel. Now the whole congregation of the children of Israel assembled together at Shiloh and set up the tabernacle of meeting there, and the land was subdued before them. But there remained among the children of Israel seven tribes which had not yet received their inheritance. Then Joshua said to the children of Israel, How long will you neglect to go and possess the land which the Lord your God of your fathers has given you? Pick out from among you three men for each tribe, and I will send them, and they shall arise and go through the land, survey it according to their inheritance, and come back to me. And they shall divide it into seven parts. Judah shall remain in the territory of the south, And the house of Joseph shall remain in their territory on the north. You shall therefore survey the land in seven parts. Bring the survey here to me, that I may cast lots for you here before the Lord God. But the Levites have no part among you, for the priesthood of the Lord is their inheritance. And Gad, Reuben, and half the tribe of Manasseh have received their inheritance beyond the Jordan on the east, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave them. Then the men arose to go away, and Joshua charged those who went to survey the land, saying, Go! Walk through the land, survey it, come back to me, that I may cast lots for you here before the Lord in Shiloh. So the men went, passed through the land, wrote the survey in a book in seven parts of cities, by cities, and they came to Joshua at the camp of Shiloh, there in Shiloh, and then Joshua cast lots for them in Shiloh before the Lord, and there Joshua divided the land to the children of Israel according to their divisions." So we're getting there. So tonight we're picking up these seven remaining tribes to get their inheritances. As I mentioned, a couple interesting things in the context. They, it says here that the, the land was subdued. So as I mentioned, things have settled. Things are pretty much in place. But being in place, there's seven tribes that are like, so what's next? Like, what do we do? They didn't really get after it. And so they need to receive their inheritance that the Lord's going to give them. And Joshua says about the neglect, and then they, they pick three, which is interesting, because thus far with the last 40 years with Joshua and the spies being sent out, and then even when he sent out the spies to Jericho, it was twos. But for whatever reason, he sends out three. In the survey, the surveying, there are three from each tribe, and they go out and they survey this land. So it's like going through Southern California, carving it up. There's Saddleback Mountain. There's Lake Elsinore. Here's North San Diego County. Here's East San Diego County. Here's the way up by... Menifee and toward Moreno Valley. Literally, that's what it's like. That's what they're doing. They're walking through the land and serving it and making these distinctions. 
And that's the context of what's happening there. But really, they're entering into the promises. So these are the promises that God made for them, even as we talk about the New Testament for the Church of Jesus Christ and followers of Christ. We have promises for the church universally, and we have promises for our lives personally with the different things that we might be facing and going through favorably or disfavorably. But Shiloh has become the base of operation. We'll see later on, if you go through the historical books, that Shiloh becomes a place where they kept the tabernacle. The tabernacle found a home in Shiloh pretty much until the time that David brought, brought the tabernacle to Jerusalem to make that the place where God's presence dwelt among the people. Remember, the tabernacle has the Ark of the Covenant, the holy place, the, the holy inside, the outer court with the animal sacrifices. So their central place of worship has come to Shiloh. So that the central place of worship, that's in place. The people are gathered together. And now Joshua is speaking to them to finish the job, which brings us to this phrase, how long will you neglect to go and possess the land which the Lord, your, which the Lord God of your fathers has given to you? It's a good phrase. How long will you neglect to go and possess that the terminology Joshua uses here for them in their context is they had neglected things. Now, we know things can fall into neglect if we're not proactively doing things. And if we have a task or a responsibility, like when we're kids and our parents say, hey, do this, clean up your room, do this and that, and they come back two hours later and done it, and they'll say, oh, you neglected to do what I asked you to do or told you to do. We understand how that word neglect works for us. And in this context, their neglect, they neglected the seven tribes collectively to go in and possess the inheritance which the Lord God was giving to them. So they were neglecting, negligent to go get after it and finish the job. When we say neglect, oh, you neglected to do your homework or you neglected to finish your homework. Again, we have the idea that it's an incomplete task. They were incomplete in f- finishing and fulfilling what God had entrusted for them to do. And they're incomplete in doing what God called them to do. That was to their own benefit. They were, it was a blessing for them. Like, they would get the blessing. There's seven tribes going, what do we do? Like, who's going to do this for us? Now, we already saw previously with the sons of Joseph, Manasseh and Ephraim, the subdivisions, where they're like, hey, we're a great people. We need more land. Give us more land. And Joshua's like, yeah, you are a great people. Since you're great, go up there and go get it. And I go, well, 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 there's chariots up there, and there are iron chariots. And yeah, but you're a great people. Go get it. So Joshua has already stated previously to, to go get it. Make it happen. Like, get after it because it's already promised to you. So with this context for them, historically, we think of, how it would apply to us if, and we are followers of Jesus Christ. The book of Hebrews warned us about neglecting to enter into the promises of God and to the maturity of faith that God has for us. There's the term used there as well with neglect. The Bible implies at various junctures, and certainly New Testament, where Titus it says, to set in order things that are lacking, which is pretty similar But again, neglect has the idea that something was entrusted to us, a stewardship or a responsibility in general, and that we did not fulfill it and complete it. It's a personal stewardship. 
So if the Lord is saying by the Spirit of God to us personally that we're neglecting to enter into something, that would imply that we haven't finished something God called us to do. Deal with this situation. Confront this unpleasant thing. Deal with this pleasant thing. This is actually pretty pleasant in in the sense that they're going to benefit from it. If they put this in order and they do what they're already... If they just get after what was already promised to them, they're going to be blessed. So there's actually a a greater motive because we tend to neglect that which we don't want to do and has little incentive. We tend to neglect that which we don't want to do and has little incentive to do it. This is like, hey, you're in the trust, you're in the will. All you have to do is just go get it. And it's yours. So there's a benefit in it. So in other words, if they just do what God called them to do, there's a benefit in it. And so I think of us tonight that for me personally, for all of us, that we want to just keep filling our minds and our hearts and our lives with the promises of God and and the goodness of God, the things of God, the things that stir up our faith, and that we'll go after it, that we're not in retraction. We can't let things in our personal life or in our workplace, or in our environment, or in our country, or whatever it might be, put us in neglect. I spoke, Jim Gallagher, our in-laws, they're in town, and he pastors Calvary Chapel Vero Beach there. Super healthy church. They went through a lot in the last year and a half. And their numbers looked a certain way before COVID. Their numbers are down since COVID. And just today, it was shared with my wife Jennifer when Jim and Christy were over that Christy mentioned that the church, when it came back from all the stuff, that they were a third less than they previously were and that of the people of what the church is, 50% are people they never knew before COVID. That's pretty much WG. A lot of you have shown up since the COVID crisis that are new to the church and we love you and we welcome you and we're Really glad you're here, and I personally am grateful that you believe in me to teach the Word of God and and lead this flock for such a time as this. There were X amount of people at this church before COVID, and probably a third of them disappeared during COVID and never came back, very similar. As I spoke, and I've spoken with other pastors, very, very similar. Most Bible-believing churches, let's just say gospel-preaching Bible-believing churches, are down by about a third since the COVID crisis began, most of them. The big churches are maybe even down much more than that. They're down. And what I'm finding is I talk to different friends in the ministry, the congregations that are, are are different. They're new congregations. And again, they're in Dallas-Fort Worth where our, our good friends have gone, Hector and Raul and Alex and now Broderick, where they're involved at the Calvary Chapel, Fort Worth. This is exactly what Raul was telling me here a few weeks ago because he teaches the junior high ministry there, our former youth pastor. He said, Joey, it's crazy, but we were like we were like 900 people on a Sunday morning, two different services, sanctuary holds 500, and we were, you know, four or 500 people on a Tuesday, on a Wednesday night. Now we're about 80 people on a Wednesday night, and we're about 200 people each service. And pastor recently got up and said, hey, there's no reset. This is who we are. We're not resetting anything. This, this is who we are right now. This is what is. And this is Calvary Chapel, Fort Worth. And Raul mentioned the same thing. 
that so many people left that never came back and that those who are there, a good portion, are all new faces. Do you realize that God has done a reset with the Church of Jesus Christ worldwide since COVID began? The Bible talks about things that are shaken and what's firm and remain will stay. Now, I have nothing against anyone that's left the church. People leave churches all the time for good reasons and none for a bad reason, and that's fine. I've come and gone to different churches too. When I lived in North San Diego County for three years, I went to Calvary Vista, Horizon North County, Bob Botsford, and then with Brad Lambert, you know, at his church there in Oceanside. I understand and we get that. Trying to find the place and the fit, it's there. I get it. But to me, it's very interesting in all this stuff that these are things that happen. And even when I talk to the brethren in Russia, I get the same thing. But in the midst for us of our application of this text, the promises are still yes and amen. And they're no less applicable to my life and your life on this day in September 2021 than they were in September 2020 or September 2019. The promises of God have not changed one bit. But our perception of what God's doing, what he can do, or where we're at and everything, that has kind of changed. We, we do feel like humanity as a whole, like we're on our heels. And we feel like, where is our confidence in going forward? Where is our faith for the kingdom? And so I look at this text, and it says that they neglected to... Go get everything they're meant to get. And while we're constantly praying about how we can grow and improve this ministry to the children's ministry, splitting the classrooms, to the youth ministry, we're working on some things right now to reboot our youth ministry on Saturdays. We've got different things going. We're thinking outside the box. But I say this only because of my background in marketing and, and business and stuff like that, that you know, we use terms like the optics and, and the branding and all that, like, the church isn't a brand, so understand me when I say this, but our brand is growing, not retreating. And though churches might have less people, the one who owns it all, the owner of the vineyard, if we're now we're using parables from the New Testament, he's got this. So we need the vision of how to grow personally and how to expand the kingdom of God overall. To have a vision for steps of faith, living by faith, and going out in faith, and seeing the kingdom grow, not retract. That's what we need to do. We need to look at this text and say, I don't want to be in neglect personally, spiritually, in personal character. I don't want to be in neglect in my vision of what who God is, his promises, and what he can do in and through my life in 2021 or next year as well. Yeah, everything is changing. There's massive migrations to new states like Texas and Florida and Tennessee. There's massive migrations out of states that are, this is the new Rust Belt, right? California. People are migrating out of California because of the tax laws and all these different things. But, but the church is still the church. Like Jim Gallagher said today, nothing changes for us ever. We preach the gospel and we teach the word of God. We know who we are and we know what we're called to do. So the important thing for us is not to let outside noise hinder our perspective of what we're called to do personally and as a church to enter in. We have tried very diligently to grow this brand this year through the YouTube channel and live stream, through podcasts, 
through our website and the studies on our website, through the K-Wave broadcast, and through tens of thousands and tens of thousands going out in the mission field that we've been blessed to, to be receiving and transferring. That's a wonderful thing. Your prayer list and, and what you have and your, your worldview as you pray for different things, it should be shaped by confidence in an expanding kingdom. So for me, I feel a personal exhortation here not to neglect things that God is showing us to do in pastoral leadership and for me personally as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Even now, I've received information, I've confirmed it, that you can, Americans can again travel to Russia and a vaccine is not required to get in. The third criteria is that I would even be able to get in to go there and do benevolent and humanitarian work. So I had three things by which I would consider going back to Russia and two of those three for sure are there. And the third one is whether or not they'd let me in but, you know, with Russia, you just never know anyways. Well, I'm not concerned about us getting in. Actually, I'm more concerned about getting out. Da? Da? Hey. <laughs> yeah. that's, 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 a little, that's a little more concerning. Like, you know, easy in, out, right? And, then, and the consulate says, don't come here because we can't help you. That's a little discouraging, too. But the Calvary Chapel brethren are like, hey, we can apply for the visa right now, three-year humanitarian visa, and been praying about that this week. And if nothing else, it's good to pray about it because it just reminds me not to neglect. I spent 16 months every day learning Russian, and I put it on the shelf because it's just there was no, there's no chance. Well, Pasha reached out and said, "Comrade, <laughs> uh, you, you should be thinking about this." And so I'm, I am thinking about it. I am. And if I'm thinking about something like that, you should be thinking about something like that for you. Because my job is to equip you for the work of the ministry. It'll be by example, but to equip you. So let's just look at this text tonight and say, let's not come short of entering into things and neglect what God is showing us. Let's not be shutting down. Let's be expanding. Let's see a brand, because if the church is a brand, and understand me, I don't, I'm just put it in terminology, you get it. We're, we're not retracting. The kingdom of God should always be expanding. And so I encourage all of us to think, are we neglecting anything in our walks with the Lord? Are we neglecting our vision for God and his promises as a whole? Are we neglecting to see the goodness of what God can do, what he has done and what he will do? Are we neglecting to seek him for vision for new adventures of faith? Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. So we need to have new ventures of faith and openness to faith of different things in the body of Christ. So I would really encourage us to think, let's not neglect the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, whatever that looks like for us individually. I'm sharing my heart about this church and what we've been trying to do in 2021 and what we have been doing in 2021, but also like really even looking ahead to 2022. We're, we're going to keep being the church. We know who we are and what we're called to do, and we're not going to stop doing that until we, until I'm in eternity, for me personally, and until the Lord comes back. We're just yoked with all those people who came before us, and this is our time. Now, as we read on in the distribution of the land, we're going to get Benjamin. And I'm going to read it because, like I told you, I, I really want to read all this. I had someone correct me on my Hebrew Saturday night on how I pronounce uh, Manasseh because I say Manasseh. Like, you know, you know them folks over them there in Manasseh? <laughs> And, you know, when you pray the uh, Shema there, the Shema, you know, and it's like, uh, I'm, I get it. 
That's part of the fun of me pronouncing names, right? The only thing better would be if Raul Reese was here pronouncing the names, and we'd really have a, we'd really have a good time. So we're going to pick up. I'm going to read them because I may never be here again, and so why not? Let's just read them. Verse 11. Now the lot of the tribe of the children of Benjamin came up according to their families, and the territory of their lot came out between the children of Judah and the children of Joseph. So Benjamin's territory as a whole, we talked about the map in the back of your Bible. They land next to Judah in the south, and they're going to actually border Jerusalem. Verse 12. Their border on the north side began at the Jordan, and the border went up to the side of Jericho on the north and went up through the mountains westward. It ended at the wilderness of Beth Aven. The border went over from there toward Luz and the side of Luz, which is Bethel, southward, and the border descended to Ataroth, Adar, near the hill that lies on the south side of lower Beth Horon. Then the border extended around the west side to the south from the hill that lies before Beth Horon southward, and it ended at Kirjath Baal, which is Kirjath Durham, a city of the children of Judah. See, their borders right there with Judah. This was the west side. The south side began at the end of Kirjath Jerem, and the border extended on the west and went out to the spring of the waters of Nephtoah. Then the border came down to the end of the mountain that lies before the valley of the son of Hinnom, which is in the valley of Rephim, on the north, descended to the valley of Hinnom, to the side of the Jebusite city, on the south, and descended to Enrogal. And it went around from the north, went out to Enshemesh, and extended toward Gileath, which is before the ascent of Adumim, and descended to the stone of Bohan, the son of Reuben. That's the second reference to the stone of Bohan. Obviously, this guy set up a stone or a rock, whatever, and it became a reference point for people, which is kind of cool. Verse 18. Then it passed along toward the north side of Arba and went down to Arba, and the border passed along to the north side of Beth Hugla, and then the border ended on the north bay at the Salt Sea at the south end of the Jordan, Jordan River. This was the southern boundary. The Jordan was its border on the east side. This was the inheritance of the children of Benjamin according to its boundaries all around according to their families. Now the cities of the tribe of the children of Benjamin according to their families were Jericho, Beth Hogla, Emek, Kizis, Beth Harba, Zemarim, Bethel, Avim, Para, Ophrah, Chifar, Hamoni, Ophni, and Gaba, 12 cities with their villages, Gibeon, Rama, Berak, Mizpah, Chifira, Moza, Rekum, Ifil, Tirla, Zila, Eleph, Jebus, which is Jerusalem, Gibeath, and Kirjath, 14 cities with their villages. This was the inheritance of the children of Benjamin according to their families. So as I mentioned, those Benjamin, the Benjamites ended up right next there to Judah. And when you have the southern kingdom later on with the divided kingdom, you got Benjamites hanging around there. They naturally geographically were neighbors, and they were in and around the place at the same time. The Benjamites, so they bordered Jerusalem, the city, the holy city of Jerusalem. So the Benjamites got there, so that's one of seven they got theirs. In chapter 19, we read on. The second lot came for Simeon, for the tribe of the children of Simeon, according to their families. And their inheritance was within the inheritance of the children of Judah. So their, let me just say this. Their inheritance, verse 1, is within Judah. If you got that little map on the back, you see this big territory for Judah. And then there's a circle in the middle of it. And that's where they landed. Simeon landed like the middle of Judah. It's a very unusual border that they got. Verse 2. They had in their inheritance Beersheba, Sheba, Moladah, Hazar, Shaul, Bela, Ezem, 
Eltolide, Bethul, Horma, Ziglag, Beth Markabath, Hazar, Susa, Beth Leboath, and Sharuhen. Thirteen cities and their villages. Anin Rimon, Ether, Ashin, four cities and their villages. And all the villages that were all around these cities, as far as Belath, Bair, Rama of the south. This was the inheritance of the tribe of the children of Simeon, according to their families. The inheritance of the children of Simeon was included in the share of the children of Judah, for the share of the children of Judah was too much for them. Therefore, the children of Simeon had their inheritance within the inheritance of that people. Well, that's an interesting story, an interesting phrase. It was too much for him, for Judah. Judah got a big piece of territory. We saw that a couple chapters ago. And it turns out their territory was too big for him. And thus, somehow between Joshua and the Lord, whatever, a big chunk right there in the middle was carved out and given to him. Let's think about this. It says, the Holy Spirit says, for them, in the context historically, their covenant, their people, their land, their inheritance, it was too much for them. So in an agri society, they just had too they didn't they had too much. They had too much land. They couldn't farm it properly, they couldn't shepherd the flocks properly. It was too much. The land required more than they could do. Recently someone sought my counsel on buying a house or looking at a five acre lot, and it had a pond on it. And they're first time homeowners. I go, you don't want that lot. They have little kids too. I go, you just just because you have little kids, you don't want water. Trust me. We bought a house on a lake, three-foot drop off the fence. I had nightmares of Hannah when she was two going right over that fence. I like I didn't sleep well until we sold that townhome and moved to a house with a nice big backyard. But I said, you do not want listen, if you've ever lived in the South or the Midwest or Mid-Atlantic, five acres, you need like you need like you need, you need a tractor to mow those lawns. That's not like your HB, you know, a custom mace, like, yeah, clean. No, you need, like, it's like, it's, it's half of shoreline facility. And it grows just as fast there as it does here. You need a big tractor. Like, you don't have time for it. It's too much lot for you. Plus, you got the water. That means you're in a flood zone, too. Like, you, you know, you, it's just too much. You're going to be a first-time home buyer. Like, you just, three-bedroom, two-bath, nice neighborhood, new Starbucks within a mile. Come on, man, let's, let's. For real, you know, let's let's think here. Let's 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 you know. I, I know, like, listen. No, we want to be way out in the country. Actually, you don't, because only people out in the country are raising pigs or cooking crystal meth. Like, I mean, that's what I said because I've been to those parts of the country, and I know that's kind of what happens. And obviously, people do live in the country that don't just raise pigs or cook crystal meth. But like, you don't you you want to be in a suburb. You want like you want something like you want Trader Joe's nearby. Like, you don't want to have to drive. You just trust me. Trust me on this. It's too, but the lot's too big. It's too much land. It's too much to maintain. Anyone that's ever owned a pool, you get a pool, it's like, you know, it's like a boat, right? Best day of your life, when you sold your boat. Second best day of your life, when you bought your boat. Well, if, if you've ever had pools, sometimes it kind of goes to pools too. Best day of your life, when you sold the house of the pool. Before that, best day of your life, when you built the pool and the kids had the pool. When you have a pool, your insurance goes up, you have greater legal accountability, and you got to maintain that pool. Like, that's what we learned when we had a pool for five years in Costa Mesa. It's like, if you don't take care of that pool, it's going to turn into a green pond, and the ducks are going to think it's their home. And you got to pay, so, and then, but the, if you're like me, you're like, hey, I can do this. We can keep our pool clean. No, you can't. No, you can't, Pastor Joey. And you get, you're going to end up paying someone 150 a month to come clean your pool because you don't have the time or the skill set, or the interest to do it. 
It's too much. What do, what, when a lot of times when people have a house they've had for years and the kids grow up and they had a pool, what ends up happening sometimes? When the grandkids come out, they don't have the pool anymore because they don't want to stress worrying about grandkids in the pool. They tear that thing down. How much does it tear down a pool? Five to ten grand, depending on where you are. I've been in someone's backyard. Well, I thought you guys had a pool. We do. It's underneath that soil. It's too much. It's too much. We often want more of this and more of that, but it's just too much. There are things that we, as we say, bite off more than we can chew. There are things that are just too much. Less is more. One of my favorite conversations, many of you know I like to hang out with smart people and download their data. I, I, I'm like, Mission Impossible. Dun, 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 I just download it. And I, when I'm talking to you, I'm downloading stuff from you because you all have things that I can grow and learn from. But many years ago, Bob Hurley from Hurley Clothing, we're good friends from the days that we surfed before he was ever Bob Hurley, and it was Hurley Surfboards on Main Street. And he, he started Billabong. Well, he was Billabong USA, and he built this big brand. And so in 1999, the, the brand was worth uh, $70 million, and he went outside and turned the sign out front to Hurley. And so Billabong USA was a $70 million company with no product, whatever. That's how I got a job working for Billabong USA because um, they hired me at their new place, 117 Waterworks Way, to be a part of their team and all this stuff. They had to, re- they had to create, they had everything in place, a $70 million company, but Bob Hurley just changed the sign out front, and now Hurley's got Billabong scrambling to keep their company going while Bob Hurley's over here. And I saw Bob Hurley, and I asked him, Bob Hurley, you were the CEO of a $70 million company, why would you leave that for a $40 million company? Because that's what Hurley became his first year. And he said, because I make more money from a $40 million company than a $70 million company. And I thought, wow, less is more. It's more enjoyable for Bob. It was more enjoyable for Bob Hurley to be Hurley right up the street and to be the boss of Hurley and make decisions for Hurley. Less was more. He wasn't part of this global thing anymore. And he was, he was Bob Hurley doing it his way. Less is more. I'll never forget that because I thought, that's a life lesson from someone that has twice been extremely successful in the surf industry, garment business, which is extremely difficult to do. The odds are like 10,000 to one. You'll never make it. He did it twice. But when I asked him, he said, and of course his wife has a long history of being involved in Calvary Chapel women's ministries and wonderful things. He said, because I'll make more money with a $40 million company. So our goal isn't to make more money. Our goal is to be more efficient. He was essentially saying, I'll have a greater degree of enjoyment in my life and greater efficiency with Hurley, and less is more. That's what he said. And I thought, that's very insightful. And we learn that sometimes when churches get bigger, 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 and they think like corporations, bigger, 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 suddenly you're overextended and things become less efficient and they become more bureaucratic like large governments. And suddenly you lose, you lose some of your efficiency where you're just not connected. That's the danger of big churches where that can happen. Less is more. Judah had more than what they knew to do with. 
They couldn't farm it properly. They couldn't graze it properly. And the best thing God ever did for them was plant Simeon right in the middle of their territory and says, Simeon's got this territory. You'll be more efficient with the other two-thirds of the property that still remains than to try and manage all this property. I would rather you be extremely efficient with two-thirds of what you originally got and be fruitful than have all of it and be not fruitful and not fulfill the opportunities. So I think there's a great lesson from their historical context to even what we know in the Christian church. Jesus didn't pour into 500 people. He poured into 12 and three specifically. They say, you know, they say the closer you get to Jesus on the cross, the less people there are. When it's free food, it's 5,000. When it's signs and wonders, it's 70. When it's the Last Supper, it's 11. When it's the Garden of Gethsemane, it's three closer. And when it's Jesus on the cross, it's one. John, your mom. Mom, your son. Efficiency in the body of Christ is close to the cross. And the numbers are never high. Because true discipleship is very costly. The gate is narrow. And so... We're just reminded that the real thing we're looking for in service to Christ is the quality of our commitment and our faith, our love and service to the Lord and other people. We often think greatness with God is another Harvest Crusade with great glory, which is great. I saw the Harvest Crusade at the bus stop, the sign. I saw it this week. I knew it was coming. Hey, there it is, man. Craig Glory, man. <laughs> God bless Craig Glory, man. You just never know when you get to heaven. It might be that usher that served at every single Harvest Crusade that has more fruit than Craig Glory on the day of Christ Jesus. The person, the people that clean up the trash, you know? The people who actually followed up with people on the phone calls. It's going to be so different before the throne of God. All the, big and, all the big and magnificent, the grand, uh, not to take away from that, there's, there's, I'm sure there's great glory for great glory. But I think there's going to be plenty of blessings and fruit for those people who simply behind the scenes serve faithfully without any fanfare at all. That's, that's what I'm talking about. We don't have to do all these great and grand things. We just want to do what we're called to do and do it effectively and efficiently. And the Lord gives us wisdom. I learned in 2000, that was, well, kind of more like 99, I learned how important it is to say no. Because I said yes to everything in Jesus' name, and then I realized this is not sustainable. But at that time, I was a guest speaker, and I didn't have a set fee for anything, so I totally lived on faith wherever I went, and I had all the kids, and, you know, it was, it was challenging. But I learned that I had to say no because I became inefficient. I lost. It's like pitchers and pitch count. When you blow out your arm, you're never the same in baseball. You have to protect the pitch count. Less is more efficiency. God did you a favor. And if he does it to you and me, good. If God, you know, in baseball, sometimes they shut someone down. They shut them down in August. I'm shutting you down, or they start reeling them in to get them ready for the playoffs so they don't blow out their arm in the last two months. Or if the team has no chance of making the playoffs and they're the superstar pitcher, they might actually shut them down for the year. They're doing them a favor. 
They're saying less is more. So it was too much. We need to stay away from too much. So we want to go out in faith and not be negligent of what God set before us, but we got to be careful of too much. Because too much will bog us down and we don't become efficient in anything. We're inefficient in everything. Verse 10. So now we're going to get these, the rest of these tribes. We're going to go through this, and here we go. Fasten your seatbelt. The third lot came out for the children of Zebulun, according to their families, and the border of their inheritance was as far as Sarid. Their border went toward the west and toward Marlah, went to Debasheth, and extended along the brook that is east of Jachnium. Then from Sarid, it went eastward toward the sunrise along the border of Chishloth, Tabor, and went out toward Tiberoth, bypassing Japhia. And from there, it passed along the east of Gath-Hefer, toward Eth-Kazin, and extended to Rimon, which borders on Nia. Then the border went around it on the north side of Hanathon, and it ended in the valley of Jiphthon-El. Included were Katal, Nahal, Shimron, Idla, Bethlehem, 12 cities with their villages. This was the inheritance of the children of Zebulun, according to their families, these cities with their villages. The fourth lot came out to Ishakar from the children of Ishakar, according to their families, and their territory went to Jezreel and included Cheshulath, Shunem, Hafiram, Shion, Anaharath, Rabbith, Kishion, Abes, Remath, Enganim, Enhadet, Beth Pazes, and the border reached to Tabor, Shazazamiah, and Beth Shemesh. Their borders ended at the Jordan, the Jordan River, 16 cities with their villages. This was the inheritance of the tribe of the children of Issachar, according to the families, the cities, and their villages. The fifth lot came out for the tribe of the children of Asher, according to their families, and their territory included Helkoth, Hali, Betan, Ashaf, Alamelech, Ahmed, Mishal. It reached to Mount Carmel westward along the brook Sihor, Libna. So they're over on the coast, more up the northern coast, going north of Tel Aviv. It turned toward the sunrise to Beth Dagon and reached to Zebulun and the valley of Jethia, El, then northward beyond Beth Emek and Nethel, bypassing Kabul, which was on the left, including Ebron, Rehob, Haman, and Kana, as far as Greater Sidon, so right up toward Lebanon, and the border toward Ramah and the fortified city of Tyre. Then the border turned to Hosea and ended up by the sea region of Akzib. Also, Uma, Aphek, and Rehob were included, 22 cities with their villages. This was the inheritance of the tribe of the children of Asher, according to their families, these cities with their villages." The sixth lot came out to the children of Naphtali. For the children of Naphtali, according to their families, and their borders began at Helef, and closed the territory from the Terebinth tree in Zananim, Adami, Nikeb, and Jabnil, as far as Lakam. It ended at the Jordan. From Helef, the border extended westward to Asnath, Tabor, and went out from there toward Hukath. It adjoined Zebulun on the south side and Asher on the west side, and ended at Judah by the Jordan toward the sunrise. And the fortified cities are Zidim, Zir, Hamath, Rakath, Chirureth, Adma, Rama, Hazor, Kadesh, Idiri, Enhazor, Aran, Migdal, El, Horam, Beth Anan, Beth Anath, and Beth Shemesh. Nineteen cities with their villages. This was the inheritance of the tribe of the children of Naphtali, according to their families, the cities, and their villages. And here's the last tribe, the tribe of Dan, verse 40. The seventh lot came out for the tribe of the children of Dan, according to their families, and the territory of their inheritances were Zorah, Eshtol, Ir Shemesh, 
Shalabamben, Ajon, Jethla, Elon, Timna, Ekron, Etakeh, Gibithon, Balath, Jehud, Beni, Barak, Gath, Rimnon, Mejakon, and Rakon with the region near Joppa. And the border of the children of Dan went beyond these because the children of Dan went up to fight against Lashem and took it. And they struck it with the edge of the sword and took possession of it and dwelt in it. They called Leshem Dan, after the name of their father Dan. This is the inheritance of the tribe of the children of Dan, according to their families, these cities with their villages. So now all seven tribes got it. Again, it's like, it's like a, a lottery. <clears throat> Recently when I was in a jury pool, I was in a pool of about 50 jurors. And so many of you know what jury duty is like, but you get called upstairs. So we're there on the sixth floor at Santa Ana courthouse and we're in this courtroom and they explain the trial and the judge and everyone so we get an idea it's a civil suit all this kind of stuff well they start calling jurors and you know you're in the room with the other people right how many of you ever been in this situation raise your hand you, oh, almost all of you so yeah, they start calling the names like okay yeah am i getting out here at lunchtime or what's it going to be like because we've done this in westminster and newport as well so they they call and they get these people up there and everyone's got excuses and all this, because it's going to be a long trial. It's going to be like a four-week four trial. I was like, going. so they start calling people. You'll never believe this. I got to go back the next day. Well, I'm still, it's still my jury pool, like 50 people, but they keep, you know, they, you get, you get uh, 16, right? You get the 12 and the four. So you got 16, and they got them on the chair, and one by one, we're all going, and then it's down to like five of us, and there's like four of us and three of us, and we're sitting in the chairs, and it's down to two, and I'm like, it's you and me, homie, you know, like <laughs> scissor, rock, paper. They call him. And then they dismiss someone else and they call me. I was like, there it is. Uh, my lot's been cast. And I sat on that jury for three days and then got dismissed on Friday before we ever went to trial. But it was interesting because I felt like it was the lot. Like I was the last one. I was like, this would be crazy if I go home, the last person. Yeah, like, Lord, you're so funny. It's like, but then I think it was funny when I was in the jury chair and all that. But the point being, these seven tribes are there, and it's like, okay, Naphtali, Zebulun, Asher, and, and they're divvying up the land. You know the land? You're like, Simeon's over here scratching her head going like, dude, how do we get stuck in the middle of Judah? You know, like, but meanwhile, we're like, and then all of a sudden they call Dan, like, Dan, and a lot to Dan goes here. You're like, south? I wanted to be in the north, man. Like, ha, ah, because you're the last one, right? So you already know what's left. These two, two, there's two tribes. There's like Naphtali and Dan. Naphtali got this nice coastal up in the north. And like, ah, why do we end up down here? How do we end up in the Moreno Valley? We're looking good for, you know, coastal southern Orange County. Like, what happened? And, and you know, this is epic because look what it says. And a couple of these guys like, forget that, man. They pull out their swords. They trucked it 60 miles north and whooped some people and said, this is our inheritance. <laughs> this is our inheritance. Forget that. <laughs> That's hot and landlocked, man. We're, we're going for a mountain view by <laughs> Mount Hermon. <laughs> it's like, forget that. If we learn anything from Caleb and what Joshua told the half-tribe of Manasseh and Ephraim, he said, go get it. These guys have got on their horses and they went and got it. And you got to appreciate that. So if you think you got something more coming, then get on your horse and make it happen. Like, I appreciate this. Now, in the book of Judges, this becomes a place where, uh, of idolatry, actually. But this generation, they're like, hey, go get it. Go get it. Go get it. It says they, they went beyond these. 
because they, the children went out to fight and they took it. But they were coming from the place of knowing that it was all belonged to the Lord and his people. This was territory that God promised to Israel and no one had conquered it and no one was willing to go conquer it. And they're like, well, hey, we saw what Caleb did down there. We saw what he did down by Hebron. We can do the same thing. We heard what Joshua told those guys from Ephraim to do. Let's go do it. And they did. So again, it almost goes back to the first thing I was talking about, that sometimes we just got to go get it. And what you put in is what you get. So we're almost done tonight, but let me just say this. In the book of 2 Kings, Elisha, not Elijah, Elijah's already in heaven, but Elisha, he was going to die. He says he's, gonna, he's got sick and he's going to die. And sooner or later, we're all going to get sick and die. And uh, so Elisha gets sent to uh, Joram, the king. And he goes to the king and he says to him, God sends him to the king. And he says to the king, hey, this is the arrow of the Lord's deliverance. He puts his hand on the bow with the arrow. And, and the king's like, okay, whatever. And Elisha says, no, no man. Because there's nothing more terrifying to a secular king than a dying prophet. Right? Think that went through. If you live for the world and you're a king and all you care about is being a king and your little kingdom and God sends you a dying prophet, man, you got a mismatch on the scales. Like this is a, you, you can't, he's got you. So Elisha shows up and says, hey, he's like, oh my goodness. Oh, oh, Elisha, Elisha, my father, my mother. You know, he's like, hey, it's all good. I'm dying here. What are we going to do? Grab this bow and arrow. Put your hand on like this. He's like, okay. This is the arrow of the Lord's deliverance. Now shoot it. And he shoots it. And he goes, now strike the ground with the arrow of the Lord's deliverance. And he goes out there and he goes, uh, one. Uh, it's so weird. Two. Elisha's like, three. He's done. What does Elisha say to him? You are foolish because you settled for three victories instead of more. What you gave is what you got. In the passion you gave is the direct, quanti- direct response to what you're going to get back. You settle for three strikes and you'll defeat the Syrians three times. But if you'd struck the ground more in faith and with passion, you would have had endless victories. You settle for less. You didn't get after it. You didn't go get it. And so the chapter ends with he defeats the Syrians three times, but that's it. So I look here at the tribe of Dan, and they just determined they were going to go get it. They were just going to go get it. Like, that's the arrow. Wham, 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 wham. They just, they're going to go get it. The other six tribes are like, well, I guess this is where we are, in the middle of Judah, whatever. Like, and they're like, no, man, let's go, let's go. Wham, 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 wham. And this goes back to the first thing I was saying, not to neglect the things that are availed to us. We want to be people of passion, people of faith, and Man, if, if the Lord puts an arrow in our hand and says, this is the arrow of the Lord's deliverance, don't stare at it, don't look at it, start striking the ground. You'll know when that God's giving that opportunity. When he's, when he's speaking to you, he says, I want to do something great through you, I'm going to do something awesome, but it's through you, and this is your calling, this is your thing, and it requires you to take a step of faith. Here it is, here is the vessel, here is the outlet, and now this is what I've given you for me. So plant it, sow it, grow it, whatever it is, get after it. That's what we see from Daniel here. I love it. It's awesome. I just, you know how I think, so of course I'm going to be drawn to a study like this. 
Because you don't, you don't get the bomb sets if you don't paddle out. That's surf terminology. <laughs> if you don't paddle out, you're not going to catch a bomb set. You got to paddle out to catch a wave. You got you to go for it. And they went for it. But when you go for it, you got to know that, you're, that the word of God's on your side, that the promises of God are for you and what you're going after. And you got a piece and you go for it. See, they knew on this last thought with these guys from Dan, they knew that this land was promised to them. And this was unclaimed promises. This land at Mount Hermon is unclaimed promises. They just went and claimed the title deed for it. They went and got it. Like Oklahoma Sooners. The sooner you get there, the better your claim. U.S. history. Verse 49, we wrap up the chapter now. When they had made an end of dividing the land as inheritance according to their borders, the children of Israel gave an inheritance among them to Joshua, the son of Nun. According to the word of the Lord, they gave to him the city which he asked for, Timnath, Sarah, in the mountains of Ephraim. He built the city and dwelt in it. These were the inheritances which Eleazar the priest, Joshua, the son of Nun, and the heads of the fathers of the tribes of the children of Israel divided as an inheritance by lot in Shiloh before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle meeting. So they made an end of dividing the country. They conquered the country, if you will. Then they divided the country, and they settled for less here. They settled for less there. They put people in sub, subjected people to be slave labor, whatever. But it was done. And so now when it's all done, what do we see? The leader, Joshua, he's the last one to get his inheritance. What did Jesus say? He who's first will be last, but the last will be first. When I studied all those books about World War I and the dreadnoughts, rule number one of a captain, if the ship's going down, you're going down with it. You don't get off that ship unless everyone else gets off the ship before you. That's great leadership. Servant leadership, leading by example. So I look at this story of Joshua that everybody got theirs and he went last. The one who could have claimed most went last. And when they said, what do you want? He's like, I kind of like this place right over here. It's good retirement property. I'd like that. Fair enough. It's your reward. Think in eternity when we step into eternity on all the things where we let others go first because a servant, he who's greatest is the servant of all. So all the things you've given up, all the things you sacrifice, all the things you let go to let someone else go first before you, whatever, don't lose heart. Because in the kingdom, those who are first will be last and those who are last will be first. So have faith. Trust in the eternal inheritance. Yes?